Hello, I'm Lina Khmudu. Welcome to Health Chat. Governments around the world are tightening restrictions to stop the spread of the Omicron variant. The Omicron coronavirus variant has been reported in more than 60 countries, and the World Health Organization says the variant poses a very high global risk. WHO says there are some evidence Omicron evades vaccine protection, but clinical data on its severity is limited. Late last month, South Africa alerted the rest of the world to Omicron, raising fears that the highly mutating variant could spark a new wave of global infections. For more insights, I spoke with clinical infectious diseases epidemiologist Professor Salim Abdul Karim, former co-chair of the South African Ministerial Advisory Committee on COVID-19 and director of the Center for the AIDS Program of Research in South Africa, CAPRISA. Take a listen. Dr. Salim Abdul Karim, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Great to be here. First and foremost, would you please give us a sense of the current outbreak in South Africa regarding COVID-19 and uh, the impact of the Omicron virus? South Africa is currently in the midst of its fourth wave. The wave, in terms of its threshold, was passed on the 2nd of December. And since then, we have seen a very rapid rise in the number of cases. In the Gauteng province, which is which has the most advanced part of our country in terms of the rate at which cases are rising, the doubling time in the fourth wave is about one and a half days, which is significantly higher than what we saw in our previous waves due to the beta or delta variant. So we have we are gaining some impression at this very early stage, tentative as it is that this is a highly transmissible virus, probably more transmissible than the Delta variant. But what we are seeing also is that in terms of clinical picture, we are not seeing the same burden of cases, especially severe cases in our hospitals. When we look at our previous waves, about two out of three of every three patients we admitted in the past waves were severe patients, patients who needed oxygen or ventilation or ICU care. But in this wave, it's only about one in four. So it looks like the clinical picture early, so don't want to make too much of it, don't want to overinterpret it because, you know, severe cases only really come about in the third, fourth week. So let's wait to see what happens. But at this early stage, Certainly no clinical red flags. One of the things that I gather from this is more transmissible does not necessarily mean more dangerous. Is that accurate? When we look at the uh, evolution of viruses, they will generally mutate and they would evolve into becoming more well adapted and they will then generate advantages. And what we've seen with SARS-CoV-2 is that transmissibility is its most important advantage. And when you're getting viruses that are evolving to become more transmissible or more infectious, they will generally become less severe. And the reason for that is very simple. A virus that makes you very ill means that you will sit at home or in a hospital and you won't be spreading the virus around. It prefers you to be quite healthy So you go into public transport and go to crowded places and spread the virus. So we we were expecting that the new variant 
would be more transmissible, but less severe or less virulent. So do you think we're going in the direction that uh, the more transmissible it becomes, we may be looking at something like turning into like the flu, perhaps? It looks like that's the general direction that this Omicron variant is, has taken us down. I think we, you know, these are just very tentative early data. Remember, we haven't known this virus for about two weeks. So, you know, we don't really know that much. But given the preliminary indications, it certainly suggests that the virus is moving in this direction. More transmissible, so more people get infected, but less severe so that fewer people end up in hospital. Our big concern was that if it's more transmissible, even if it's not more severe, we will see hospitals fill up very quickly. And indeed, we have seen an increase in the number of admissions. We have seen an increase in the number of ICU admissions, but it doesn't match what we saw during the Delta wave. This is a situation which is quite different. Now, some of it may be due to vaccination, but our vaccination coverage in the younger age groups is not that high. So it's quite likely that it's something to do also with the variant itself. What is the world getting wrong about Omicron at this stage? I know it's very early on, but uh, what can you tell us? So when we looked at this uh, Omicron variant initially, it has over 50 mutations. Now, about between 15 to 20 of those mutations, we know what they do. We have some idea because many of them are present in the past four variants of concern. But this particular variant, the vast majority of its mutations are mutations that are new. We didn't we don't know what they do. So it was a very high level of uncertainty, a big concern. You know, is this going to be you know, more severe? Is it going to spread in ways that are different? So there was a lot of concern about it. And because of the uncertainty, people panicked. They overreacted. And I don't blame them because that's, you know, the the way in which uncertainty creates anxiety. But we now have more information. We have information that shows that there are particular trends emerging, and at this early stage, that you know, no reason for concern. There's no reason for overreaction. There's no reason for panic. There's no reason, you know, to create travel bans. It's simply a matter of we're going to deal with it. It's COVID nineteen. We've dealt with the past variants. We're dealing with this variant, and we're going to deal with the other variants that are still to come. According to reports out of South Africa, and you you touched on it, actually, there is an increase in COVID cases among children. How does it present in children? Are there more mild cases or severe cases? So very early on, we saw an increase in the number of admissions in younger people, especially in the below fives. But that was a very early observation. And it could just be a statistical error or aberration, or it could be that what we were seeing was an increase in the number of cases, maybe because our schools weren't closed and the preschools were still open. But it looks like that that increase in the larger number initially of children below five has now changed. And now the number of the patient profile that's coming into the hospitals is back to what it was in previous waves. And so that initial concern has now become undone. 
It's important to note that even though we had more children initially, those were largely very mild cases. They were not children who needed oxygen or any active treatment. They were all being treated for mild conditions. And these children, again, were not necessarily vaccinated because South Africa doesn't vaccinate under 12. Am I correct? That is correct. And we, we certainly don't have any of our children below five vaccinated. Oh, okay. Now, there are also reports uh, showing that there is an increase in reinfection. What does it mean about natural immunity from prior infection? What, what does this indicate? South Africa has the ability to um, look at each new PCR-positive test, and it is able to identify whether that individual was previously infected in one of the past waves. That analysis was done by Professor Juliet Pullian at Sesima, and in her analysis, she shows that the number of reinfections in our fourth wave is increasing quite dramatically. And that increase, she, she looks at it as a ratio of reinfections versus primary infections. And she shows that there's a 2.4-fold increase in the number of reinfections. Now, as we look at that, it's the message it's conveying. It suggests that if you've been previously infected with the beta or the delta variant, then there's actually not a lot of protection that that provides against the Omicron variant. Now, we don't yet know, you know to what extent the reinfections are serious or not, because that's a different analysis that we are still awaiting. But certainly, it looks like that past infection is not providing protection against Omicron variant infection to any significant extent. This is not unusual because we saw the same with the beta variant. The beta variant, it didn't matter whether you had had a past infection or not, you were still getting infected with beta variant because it's able to break through past infection and past immunity. And Omicron seems to be doing the same. Are you seeing it evade vaccines? So right now we are seeing cases of breakthrough infection and people are fully vaccinated, but that's to be expected. No vaccine is 100% effective. So we are seeing breakthrough infections. It's not clear whether the number of breakthrough infections is much higher than what we would expect based on the efficacy of the vaccine. At this stage, we also don't know about the extent to which those cases are severe or not severe. But what we do know from early laboratory studies is that individuals who have received two doses of the Pfizer vaccine, they have lower neutralizing capacity against the Omicron variant. And that difference between the original, uh, the D614G strain, which spread through most of Europe and the world at the early part of last year, when you compare it to that, the antibody response to in those who've, been, who've received two doses of the Pfizer vaccine, the antibodies are now 50-fold lower neutralization capacity. So that's quite telling. It's, it, it certainly is a bit concerning, but not overly so, in that we don't really know how that interprets in terms of, is that going to lead 
to large numbers of breakthrough infections. A 40-fold decline in utilization would suggest that we are likely to see an increase in uh, breakthrough infections. But based on what we've seen with all of the vaccines, and particularly across all the past variants, is that the vaccines tend to remain highly effective against hospitalization and severe disease. And if that holds true for Omicron, which we expect, then we will similarly not see you know, that many severe infections and hospitalizations among those who are vaccinated. What about boosters? Has the country been rolling out booster shots? And if yes, how much does it have an impact on uh, Omicron? Yeah, due to global vaccine inequity, South Africa had difficulty acquiring vaccines very early this year. So by the time our vaccination program got up to speed, you know, it was around May of this year. So most of the people vaccinated in South Africa have, have not reached the time point where they would require a booster dose, which is normally at about six months after your second dose. Now, the uh, regulator in South Africa, the medicines regulator, has just approved booster doses, uh, and this is for adult population. And the government now will be uh, providing guidance as to when they will start introducing the booster doses. I'm not so sure the booster doses are going to do much for the Omicron variant because we don't have any data. But at this stage, uh, it, is, it is a pretty good idea to give booster doses, particularly to the elderly and to the immunocompromised, because those individuals don't develop very good immunity to just two doses of the Pfizer vaccine. And so they would do better receiving a third dose of the Pfizer vaccine. Separately, we initially gave healthcare workers a single dose of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, and those individuals are now being offered a second dose of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine so that they can complete a two-dose schedule of that particular vaccine. When Omicron was identified earlier, we heard that Omicron was due partly to the unvaccinated or to the low rate of vaccination. Could you clarify that for us, please? We don't clearly understand and know why variants are created and how they are created. We have some circumstantial evidence that suggests that immunocompromised individuals who develop a long-term persistent infection are able to lead to these kinds of mutations, and we've certainly seen that in cancer patients, patients with advanced HIV, patients with antiphospholipid syndrome, and so on. So that's what we think is responsible for creating these variants. Now, the individuals, like immunocompromised individuals, are prioritized in our vaccination program. So it's not strictly true to say that it's just vaccine inequity that's responsible, because in many of these individuals, two doses of vaccine, you still don't get a good immune response. You've got to give them a third dose, fourth dose, until they develop such an immune response. So immunocompromised people are probably one of the important groups to protect with vaccines. But what there is with vaccine inequity and the low vaccine coverage is that there's a higher risk of immunocompromised individuals getting infected because of higher transmission of the virus. So 
vaccine inequity is indirectly associated with the creation of variants if it holds true. Now, I am of the view that, you know, in Africa and in poor countries, we get infected just like rich country people do. We have to get oxygen just like people in rich countries do. We die from this virus just like rich countries do. So we should be getting vaccines just like the way they do, because it's the right thing to do. It shouldn't be that Africa will get vaccines because we are a threat to the world. We're going to create variants if we don't have vaccines. I don't think that that's appropriate. I don't think that's correct. We should get vaccines because the, the coronavirus pandemic affects us just like everybody else, and we deserve the protection of vaccination just like everybody else. You are listening to Health Chat on Voice of America. It's time for a short break. We'll have more of my conversation with Professor Salim Abdul Karim when we return. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Hello, this is James Barton, Managing Editor and host of VOA's Daybreak Africa show. Join us Monday through Friday at 03, 04, 05, and 0600 hours UTC as we bring you the latest Africa news, features, and sports. You can also be a part of Daybreak Africa through our mail segment by sending your comments to daybreakafrica at voanews.com. Or you can call us on 001-202-205-9942. And when you hear the Voice of America identification, press the number 25 to leave us your message. That's Daybreak Africa at 03, 04, 05, and 0600 hours UTC right here on VOA Africa. Welcome back to Health Chat. Our guest today is Professor Salim Abdul Karim, former co-chair of the South African Ministerial Advisory Committee on COVID-19 and director of the Center for the AIDS Program of Research in South Africa, CAPRISA. In part two of our discussion, Professor Abdul Karim elaborates on the impact of COVID-19 on HIV. Now let's talk about HIV. That's one of the areas you focus on. Can you explain to us how the treatment or the care of HIV patients is done in light of uh, COVID-19? The HIV situation remains one that's a high priority in Africa. Africa accounts for about 70% of the world's HIV burden. And in Africa, we have continuing high rates of new infections, particularly in young women. So there are many challenges that we grapple with in the HIV pandemic. But COVID-19 has created a whole new set of imperatives. One is that we've seen how the coronavirus has taken attention away from HIV, has taken funding away from HIV. And importantly, that some of the measures to control the coronavirus pandemic has led to lower usage of services for HIV. We see fewer tests being undertaken, fewer people starting treatment. So we've got to change that trajectory. We've got to get our services back. And mostly that has happened because our services are quite resilient. 
I think the big challenge that we face right now is that we've got to find a way to identify those individuals who have HIV infection and who are severely immunocompromised, but they don't know they have HIV. And it's a difficult thing because you've got to reach out to those individuals and you don't know who they are. So our testing programs are going to need to ratchet up a notch to try and identify and pick up as many people as possible so that in our overall attempt to deal with HIV, which we do through what is commonly referred to as the 1990-90 targets, that the, one of the critical issues is that we really need to get above 90% of those individuals who are HIV positive that know their status, because that's critical if we are to deal with this problem. So for someone who's HIV infected, what do you tell them in terms of the vaccine? So the data we have now, and there are about seven or eight studies that I'm familiar with that included HIV-positive patients, what we have seen is that HIV patients seem to respond and react to the vaccines pretty much in the same way as HIV-negative individuals. Now, that applies mostly to people with HIV infection who have a CD4 count above 250. Now, in those individuals, their immune system is still able to identify the vaccine, it's still able to respond and generate antibodies. So it seems that HIV-positive individuals who are not immunocompromised, there is really no issue. The vaccines are safe and they are highly effective in that group. In immunocompromised individuals, in other words, low CD4 counts, very low immune uh, uh, cells that are available to respond, in those individuals, we need to monitor them much more carefully. We need to make sure they are taking their treatment, that they are virally suppressed, that their CD4 counts are coming up. And in those individuals, that will allay any concern about vaccination because they can readily be vaccinated. One of the challenges with uh, HIV and finding a vaccine, according to report, is the fact that uh, the HIV virus mutates. Omicron in particular has so many mutations, as you mentioned. What can we learn from the COVID-19 experience that could help with regards to HIV research? Is there a silver lining in here? Having been involved in HIV for the past 36 years, There have been many lessons that I have seen and gained in the course of that time from HIV that would benefit COVID-19. Similarly, we are seeing new developments in COVID-19 that would benefit HIV. For example, we're seeing completely new vaccine platforms like mRNA. So they are giving us a bit of impetus to do better in our new technologies for HIV. But perhaps the most important thing that I have learned from HIV is the importance of mutual interdependence. In HIV, like in COVID-19, each person's actions influences other people's risk. So we are fundamentally dependent on each other. One person 
who is not taking prevention measures affects the whole community because that's the individual that starts off a chain of transmission. So it becomes really important that we appreciate in COVID-19, as we do in HIV, that every one of us has to play a role. As the WHO has said, you know, no one is safe until everyone is safe. Dr. Salim Abdul Karim, thank you so much. We appreciate your time. Great pleasure. That was Professor Salim Abdul Karim, former co-chair of the South African Ministerial Advisory Committee on COVID-19 and director of the Center for the AIDS Program of Research in South Africa. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa has gone into self-isolation after he tested positive for COVID-19. A statement from the presidency said Ramaphosa, who is described as fully vaccinated, is being treated by military doctors for mild symptoms. The number of COVID-19 daily infections has sharply risen in South Africa, coinciding with the emergence of the Omicron variant that has caused some countries to impose travel bans on South Africa, which first detected the new strain. Tuso Humalo reports from Johannesburg. According to a statement from the president's office, Ramaphosa started feeling unwell yesterday after leaving a state memorial service held in honor of President F.W. Tikleg, the last leader during apartheid. The statement also announced that Ramaphosa has gone into immediate isolation in Cape Town, leaving his deputy David Mabuza in charge. The Minister of Social Development, Lindwe Zulu, also confirmed this development in her address to the media today. As we all learned yesterday that President Cyril Ramaphosa tested positive for COVID-19 and is receiving the relevant treatment, we pray for him too and all South Africans that they all have a speedy recovery. Ramaphosa recently returned from a tour of four nations in West Africa. His office says... He had PRC tests in all of the countries and on his return home and tested negative. It's believed that Ramaphosa has received only a single dose of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. The first group of ordinary South Africans will qualify for boosters at the end of December. This comes at a time when COVID-19 daily infections have risen sharply in the past few weeks from below 1,000 to around 20,000 amid the spread of extremely contagious Omicron variant that has led some countries to impose travel restrictions on South Africa and other nations in Southern Africa. Some experts are blaming vaccine hesitancy for the new wave of infections, while others say the prohibitive PCR test cost is preventing people from regularly testing something they say could be leading to the spread. And the Competitions Commission Commissioner Tembikos Bonagele told a media briefing that the country's two major laboratories have been instructed to reduce testing costs. South Africa has entered a fourth wave of COVID-19. The PCR uh, COVID-19 tests have become essential in the fight against COVID-19. The PCR tests are required by doctors and various institutions, including for travel purposes. With Ramaphosa expected soon to address the nation on possible tougher restrictions and imposition of mandatory vaccination due to spiraling daily infections, Nomazwe Lamin is one of many citizens worried by his infection. The current variant is spreading in a very rapid rate, 
So for him to test positive at this time might mean a lot of things for us, even stricter restrictions and the mandates that we're waiting to hear. So it doesn't sound good. It's not the right time for him to test positive anyway. To date, just over 3 million people have tested positive for the coronavirus in South Africa. More than 90,000 people have died. Tusokumalo for VOA News, Johannesburg. That's all for this edition of Health Chat. For the latest news and coverage on the coronavirus pandemic, visit voanews.com. Check us out at facebook.com slash voahealthchat and let's keep the conversation going. Thank you all for joining us and special thanks to all our affiliate stations throughout Africa for carrying Health Chat. I'm your host, Lenore Moudou in Washington with producer Dan Brown. Until next time, take care, stay safe, stay well, and strive to make every day a healthy day. Maxwell, host of Music Time in Africa. Join me every Saturday and Sunday for an hour of awesome African music. Like to stay on top of new music trends? Breakout artists? New releases? Maybe you just love the classic styles and artists of the past. Or simply the sound and feel of a good beat. Whatever your pleasure, you can get it every week right here on Music Time in Africa. So join me on your local FM station, Saturdays and Sundays at 1500 and 2000 UTC. <clears throat> this is